Hello there, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan, thank you for finding us and following us. You've stumbled across the smartest show in the universe. It's where we search out all the science secrets that are lurking all over the place. This week we've got all the latest on mission transmission. We are sending the first ever radio show into space. It'll be beamed from Earth. It'll travel forever across the galaxy. It'll go on and on and on. Now we're using something called Space Speak to fire the message across the universe. And we'll catch up with the man behind that today. We have so many different cultures. We're such a rich, diverse species. Uh, I want the universe to know that. And I want us to realize that the things that make us similar are so much more common than the things that separate us. Space Speak is a way to do that. And you can hear from our science superhero, Karina, and her alter ego, K-Mystery. They look at the chemistry behind climate change. And this week, they're talking all about the wonders of carbon. So... There's more than one type of carbon? You got it! In the red corner, isotope carbon 12! Also, I've got your questions to answer. This week, they're on electricity and fat. First off, let's catch up with Sir Sidney McSprocket. He is a genius. He's here every week to tell us all about the different inventors what they've made and how they've changed the world. This time it's all about George Jennings and Duncan Fitzsimmons. Now they've not only solved problems, they've made life better too, and one of them even invented the toilet. Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. Oh, hello, Sir Sidney McSprocket here. Now, I love to invent and create new things, just like many of our great British minds. Engineers and designers love to find a way to not only solve problems, but to make life better by improving things. Like my cheese-weighed teas made, not only a lovely cup of tea, but a cracker too, with a perfect amount of cheese applied. Oh, smashing, I'll have that in a bit. Making life better is an approach favoured by many creative people and nowhere would you have seen more examples in Victorian times than at the Great Exhibition of 1851 where the very latest inventions were on display. Now, as well as special swimming gloves designed by a Mr Clayton of London, they were webbed like the duck's feet to help in swimming. The Great Exhibition featured one very important facility for the very first time ever. Any ideas? Oh, well here's a clue. The exhibition provided individual cubicles with flushing toilets for members of the public. Before 1851, flushing public toilets for men were not available, and public toilets for women, well, they didn't exist at all. What on earth were they expected to do, I wonder? Not go out at all, I expect. Large crowds of both men and women were expected at the exhibition. In fact, Prince Albert wanted as many people as possible to attend and not rush home in a hurry. He therefore instructed George Jennings, a plumber from Brighton, to install the first paid-for flushing public toilet within the Crystal Palace. But 
like many inventors, Jennings didn't want to just solve a problem, he wanted to make the experience much better too. So, visitors may have to spend a penny, but for that they'd not only get the luxury of a clean toilet seat, but they'd get a towel, a comb, and a shoe shine too. It was the start of the phrase, spend a penny. Although records show that during the Great Exhibition, over 675,000 pennies were spent. Now, there's a famous saying that you can't reinvent the wheel. But our next great British mind did exactly that. Let me introduce you to Duncan Fitzsimmons, a student at the Royal College of Art in London. He'd seen a challenge that wheelchair users faced. With bulky wheels, a lot of space is needed to store their chairs when travelling or when they are at home. He came up with a design called the Morph Folding Wheel. A folding wheelchair wheel that collapses down to nearly half its size. Fitzsimmons saw a way for a large circle to fold down into a small shape, and he tested the ideas with patterns, using everything from folding cardboard to chopping up bicycle wheels. He designed collapsible spokes and a segmented rim that locks in place by a quick-release axle inserted through the hub. And here's the thing, it not only solved a problem, but his design makes wheelchairs much more agile too. And we all want to get where we're going faster these days. So, as you can see, the sort of people who don't just settle for a solution, but who want to make things even better, are the sorts of folk who make great British minds. Oh, tea time. I'm off to have my tea and cheese before it gets cold. Tatty bye for now. Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. With support from the Royal Commission 1851. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash McSprocket. It's question time on the show then. If you've got something science-y rattling around your brain, a problem you can't figure out, maybe something you've seen around the world walking down the road and you're thinking hmm why is that doing that i'll let you know just ask me by leaving it as a review on apple podcasts this one is from orson who had a birthday last week happy birthday orson he wants to know how does electricity actually work now everything in the universe is made of atoms they are tiny microscopic they make all of the cells that end up making us they make up everything And atoms themselves are made of electrons. They're even smaller, and they can move. They can move from atom to atom, and electrons carry with them energy. Now, when these tiny electrons get charged up, and when they push, the electrons flow from one atom to another, to another, they jump, they jump, they jump, and this, this flow of electrons takes the energy that we need to power things, to turn it on. And it's that flow of electrons, that movement of energy, that we call electricity. Thank you very much for the question, Orson. Last one this week is from Owen, who wants to know, can people live without body fat? No, no, they can't, not really. 
for a few reasons. Fat gives you energy to breathe, to pump blood around your body. You need energy for all of that. Also, uh, organs in your body, it needs fats to power the cells, to protect those organs, to keep your heart, to keep your lungs warm. Also, you need fats to pad the joints in your body so that you can move. That's why it's really important. You do have some body fats because it's vital to keep you alive. Thank you very much for the question, Owen. If there's something that you want explained on this show, find us on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review. Give us five stars so I can see it and let me know your name and I'll say hello. We've got a very special guest this week, someone who is helping us send your voice into space. It's Peter Beery. He's the founder of the company Space Speak. And we're using them to send our radio show into space. He spoke to Sean all about mission transmission and our message and how it goes from sound to becoming a beam of invisible light that will travel forever through space. It's Sean on Fun Kids, and we're in the middle of one of the maddest projects I think we've ever done on Fun Kids. It's called Mission Transmission. Uh, it's where we're, we're launching a radio show into deep space. It's never been done before. Uh, we launched the whole project on the Fun Kids Breakfast Show with Kids Bop. And here to give us a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at the science is Peter Beery from Space Speak. How are we doing, Peter? Doing well. Nice to, to meet you guys. Yeah, not, nice to meet you. So you're the man who's going to be sending our special radio show into space. That's correct. And how, how is that going to happen? What, what, what does that involve? Well, I'm uh, the CEO of spacespeak.com, uh, and we have, uh, you can maybe see in the background some glowing lights. Uh, those are little transmitters. We have about a dozen of them located around the world uh, in advance of having thousands of them. And what happens is people type in a message or uh, an audio or a, a picture and soon video, and we pick one of those transmitters and start beaming it out into space. Is this the first time that a radio show has ever been sent into space? Uh, to my knowledge, it is the first time a radio show has been sent into space. That's uh, kind of cool. So it's going to be the first time that potentially life forms out there are going to get a hear of what, what a human radio show is all about. What sort of messages have been sent into space before now? We've sent uh, about, oh... 60,000 messages into space from people from around the world. And it literally is an international um, uh, contribution to this. So we have uh, probably 30 or 40 different languages have been uh, sent out through our system. Uh, there have been a number of other transmissions that have gone out as part of national um, you know, science foundations and that kind of stuff, but nothing that individuals can send. So this is really the first platform that allows anybody to reach out with any message they want and say, hey, you know, little green alien, my neighbor down the street, uh, you know, has a motorcycle. Can you do something? You know, or, or uh, you know, I've had a birthday or my grandparent has passed away and I really want to reach out to them. This provides a way to send a message and that message persists for millions and millions of years. That message will continue to travel through space. In some sense, immortalizing your thoughts uh, and your hopes and your aspirations. And I sort of feel that's a cool thing to do. And I wanted to make sure that everybody in the world can do that. Uh, in part because we have so many different cultures. We're such a rich, diverse 
species. Uh, I want the universe to know that. And I want us to realize that the things that make us similar are so much more common than the things that separate us. Space Speak is a way to do that. And it does immortalize culture, like like you just said, because these are going to be going on potentially far longer than the human race might even be existing. In the same way that you'd find a dinosaur fossil to learn about dinosaurs, you could be finding these radio waves in the future to try and make sense of a civilization that was on a planet millions of years away. Absolutely. So these are, um, and I've described it that way at times, these become archaeological photons that allow some future alien civilization to get a feeling for who we were and how we evolved, because we're going to be sending these messages through time so they can see what we've done five years ago, what we're doing 20 years from now. They can sort of get, there's a lot that you can derive from our species by looking at the signals that we send out and how they evolve and change over time. Can they, so there's nothing in space that can, that can diminish the signal. It's not like they're going to hit a planet and then all of a sudden stop or they hit a star. They can just keep going and going and going. So that's a great question. Um, the signals that leave the Earth, uh, they spread out, okay? And as they spread out, the local density gets weaker, but the signal itself stays the same strength. I mean, there's a little bit of scattering uh, here and there, but it's so small. There's just space is basically empty. Um, you know, if, if you look up at the sky, the, the moon is the biggest thing. How much of the sky does it really take up? You know, the stars are infinitesimal in size, so uh, an alien technology that was a million years more advanced than us should have no problems picking up signals from us. And in fact, I'd be stunned if there weren't alien spacecraft circling the, uh, our solar system sort of perpendicular to the orbit of our, uh, of our planets, but sort of coming this way. If they sat up there and went around the sun, they could watch our planet pretty much 24-7 we would never see them because, you know, they're they're a couple AU out. Uh, they can see us because they know where the planet is. We can't see them, and we're not going to see them, you know, if they're uh, if they're not broadcasting much. But if I were watching as a, as an alien, that's where I'd be. I like our confidence in the aliens to be able to decipher the messages. And when we're sending them out, is there, are we aiming anywhere in particular? Or do we, is there a particular galaxy where we think, do you know what, if we were going to put money on it, that is where I think the aliens are going to be hanging out? Or do we just send it out into space randomly? So that's a, another great question. We're going to do both approaches. So we're going to send what, you've, uh, what you're sending for a 24-hour period, just broadcasting around. We're also going to focus in on the um, – we have a database of, of 10,000 stars, excuse me, uh, and there's about 400 of them that have planets in what's called the Goldilocks zone. In other words, an area – uh, around the star where liquid water could exist and where potentially life could exist. So we're going to target those stars as well and right, send okay, nice. a separate message out to them. And so uh, don't be surprised if you start getting lots of, uh, you know, of pings back from, uh, from distant viewers. I, I, the Goldilocks zone. How, how do we call it the Goldilocks zone? I'm very interested in that. Uh, it's the, um, 
So it's like the three bears and Goldilocks. She tried the bed. One was too small. One was too big. And the middle one was just, just right. right. Yes. That uh, makes perfect sense when you put it like that. It makes total sense. And so we've been asking our listeners to send over um, messages to add to our mission transmission broadcast. Um, what sort of things should we be putting in the messages, do you think, if you if you're going to give us uh, um, some ideas? Look at your heart. And decide what makes a difference to you. What do you, if you could say one thing to, uh, you know, to the Greys on Alpha Centauri, what what do you want to tell them? What is special about your life or your family or your hopes or aspirations? Those are the things that uh, that we want to send out. It could be, you know, your favorite recipe for, uh, you know, empanadas. Uh, it could be a song or some poetry that you've written, or it could be pictures of your family, uh, you know, or, or your pets, uh, anything like that. And we're going to send this through Mission Transmission. Uh, I love the fact that we're doing this project, um, you know, Mission Transmission. Uh, it, it's going to be fantastic. Um, I'm so excited about it. And if you want to add your voice to our broadcast that we're going to be sending into deep space, it's super easy. Just get over to funkidslive.com. Peter, thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank you. Take care. That was Peter Beery, the founder of the company Space Speak, telling our Sean all about how he's helping us send your message, our message, our radio show through space. So how would you like your voice to be the very first human sound an alien ever hears? Mission Transmission. You can send your voice into space. It's part of Mission Transmission, a radio show that we are beaming across the galaxy. It'll go on, it'll go on, it'll go on. Maybe it'll be heard by a Martian out there in four years, maybe 40 years, perhaps even four billion years. But you can be part of our record-breaking radio show. All you need to do to get involved, head over to funkidslive.com and let us know your love letter about planet Earth. We want to know what you think about where you live, who you are. We want to know what you do who your mates are, who your family is. You can even be like Margot, and you can tell us what you want to be when you grow up. When I am older, I would like to save animals from plastic and collect that plastic to design houses or anything like that. Margot, thanks for sending that to us over at funkidslive.com. What a brilliant idea. Not just saving the plastic, but using that to save the world, to reuse, to recycle as well. I, I think the aliens would be very excited to hear that you're trying to save planet Earth. You can be like Margot. You can get involved with Mission Transmission, this radio show, over at funkidslive.com. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most deadly things in the universe. This week, it's all about one of the strangest and even lethal minerals in the world. Now, a mineral is something that makes rocks or sands or soils. They're found all over the place. Now, this one is beautiful, but it is bizarre. It's called orpiment. It's a dazzling orange-yellow colour. It's glistening and sparkling with a white bottom. It looks a little bit like a a big, old-school crown, like what kings and queens used to wear all of the time. It's found in the rocks made in hot springs, 
which are vents that push hot air at the bottom of the of the ocean through to the surface. Now this one looks a bit like it's on fire. And orpiment, this mineral, it was once used in medicine. Experts back in the day thought that it was good for you. They were quite wrong. It also was once used in alchemy. That's when people try and make gold. And they were quite wrong too. It very rarely works. The thing is, orpiment is heavily toxic. It's made of arsenic, which we've spoken about before on the show, which was used in poisons. Now, if this mineral, orpiment, uh, is allowed to be out in the fresh air for too long, if you're holding it, the arsenic becomes toxic and it will poison you just for holding it. That's how deadly it can be. And that's why orpiment needs to go on our dangerous stand list. It's time to catch up with one of our Science Weekly friends, Karina, now, and her superhero alter ego, K-Mystery. They're here every week talking to us about chemicals and, and chemistry and how that solves everyday problems. Now, last week, you might remember, they looked at green chemistry, and we found out how that's saving the world. This time out, they're taking us on a journey to discover how monitoring the air helps chemists work out how to solve the problems of climate change. Chemistry. Chemistry and climate. It's strange to think that the air is full of chemicals and molecules, including CO2 and all those other pollutants that cause the greenhouse effect. They're all around us, but we can't see any. They're invisible. Hey, Karina. So, just because you can't see something doesn't mean it isn't there. Oh, hey, chemistry. Well, I figured my chemistry superhero alter ego might have a few answers. Well, not everyone can be a superhero. And you're right that the average human can't see those chemicals and molecules swirling around us. But scientists have ways to track the effect of climate change, measure air quality and monitor what the air's containing. But first up... Let's get the 101 on air. Air is a mixture of gases and particles. Most of those gases aren't harmful, like nitrogen and oxygen, that we need to live, although some, like sulfur dioxide, are. And sometimes harmless gases react with each other and create pollutants like ozone. Air pollutants can be solid particles, liquid or gas and come from both natural and man-made sources. The biggest contributors to air pollution are currently fossil fuel power stations, road transport, industry and gas heating in our homes. While it's important to measure the level and type of pollutants to make sure we're meeting our targets for air quality, monitoring can also help us find links between things like whether certain particles in the air result in heart and lung problems. Is this like a new thing? Something we've found out about since knowing about climate change? No! Taking atmospheric measurements is nothing new. It's something scientists have been doing since the 1950s. So what are they looking for? Frequently, they're measuring carbon dioxide and other gases that contain carbon in the air. So... There's more than one type of carbon? You got it! In the red corner, isotope Isotope carbon-12! Carbon-12 
is the most common isotope of carbon. In fact, 99% of all carbon is this type. For millions of years, plants have absorbed carbon-12, and so it's abundant in our fossil fuels. So when we detect it in the air, we know it's come from burning fossil fuels, and that means pollution. And in the blue corner, isotope carbon-13. Carbon-13 is slightly different from carbon-12. It has an extra neutron in its nucleus, and each atom weighs slightly more. Plants don't like carbon-13 as much, and so it isn't that common in fossil fuels. Therefore, when it's detected in the air, we know it's come from somewhere else. Um, so who's doing all this detecting? Well, there are around 300 air quality monitoring sites across the UK measuring a variety of pollutants, from ozone, nitrogen oxide and sulphur dioxide to carbon monoxide and particulates. Oh, there's a government website you can use to see if there's one near you. Like this one. This monitoring site is next to a busy road and measures the concentration of nitrogen oxides from the traffic. These mini-labs can detect what's in the atmosphere by observing chemical reactions in the air samples. Whilst levels of pollution in the air can tell us about climate change here and now, scientists can find out about climate change in the past, even thousands of years ago, by going not up, but down. We can find clues about our planet's climate history by studying coral reefs, digging through the sediment in our ocean floors, and by drilling into glaciers and ice sheets. Ice core samples can hold a record of what our planet was like in the past and tell us what was happening up to 800,000 years ago. From pollen and atmospheric residue trapped in the ice to chemical changes which can tell us about the temperature. This information can be studied and used to help us understand climate change today. And we're back. Wow, thanks for the insight, chemistry. No problem. Always happy to help with a chemistry challenge. Online, you'll find a cool experiment where you can see how pollution enters the food chain. Why not? Check it out. Chemistry, Chemistry and Climate, with support from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Find out more and get hands-on with chemistry at funkidslive.com slash chemistry. It's time for this week's Science in the News. The past seven years have been the hottest on record. A satellite has been studying the changing climate and said that 2021 was the fifth warmest year ever with record-breaking heat in some places. It's also warned the amount of gases that warm the planet in the atmosphere are going up and that means things might get worse. Also, a huge fossilised sea dragon has been found in the UK. Now, it's not a dinosaur. It is probably 180 million years old. It's a 10-metre-long ichthyosaur. Ichthyosaurs were warm-blooded, air-breathing sea predators, a bit like dolphins, and this is the biggest one ever found in the UK. And finally, the biggest space mirror ever sent up across the galaxy is ready. The sun shield and mirror on the James Webb Space Telescope have been unfurled and built, 
up while it's floating in the atmosphere through the galaxy. It will reflect light from across space into the telescope so we can see the oldest stars in the universe. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. If there's a question that you'd like to ask the show and get a little shout out, let me know on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, you can hear loads of brilliant science series that we do. Loads more podcasts too. They're on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows from and on the free Fun Kids app. And if you would like to send your voice into space to be part of Mission Transmission, there's just a few things that you need to do. Really easy questions that you can record the answers to over at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a radio station, a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com.